Deep in the imagination, there's a crossroads, a space where curiosity and inspiration intersect and give birth to ideas. A space where music, science fiction, comic books, and pop culture inform the mind of what is and what could be. This is Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In each episode, legendary journalist Jeff Boucher welcomes the biggest names in genre entertainment for an expansive dive into all things pop culture. Journey with Jeff as he explores the latest news and recommendations of the hottest releases across entertainment with his most trusted confidants. You are now entering deep space. Heavy Metal presents Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. Welcome to Mindspace. Uh, Evan, how are you, sir? Good, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm excited about this week's show because we have an old friend on, one of my old buddies who I haven't talked to in quite a while, um, is joining us, Brad Meltzer. Oh, yeah. And I mean, talk about a man of many talents. He's done, yes. he's done everything. Yeah, he, Brad's amazing. Uh, he uh, is a best-selling novelist uh, and with books like uh, The Book of Lies, uh, and he's an attorney, uh, and that informs a lot of his work, which you might find on the same shelf that you would find, like, say, a John Grisham book or uh, a James Patterson, perhaps. Um, and Brad grew up in South Florida, and his work goes well beyond uh, uh, novels, however. He's done a lot of nonfiction stuff. He's, done, he's written a lot of books uh, for kids and about kids, about history. He's written one of the best comic book uh, tales ever, I think, uh, which was Identity Crisis, which was a, a big book for DC Comics. And it's a murder mystery involving the Justice League characters. And it was very controversial when it came out 15 years ago or so. You know, he was writing comics. Uh, he was writing Green Arrow at a time when outsiders weren't really writing comics. Uh, he was, uh, Brad was writing Green Arrow around the time Kevin Smith was doing stuff for DC as well. And, and they would have been the two most famous sort of not carpetbaggers, but um, people moonlighting, I suppose, uh, in dabbling in comics at the time. Brad and I grew up very close to each other. We didn't know each other uh, in our youth, but we, we are just a few months apart in age, and we grew up near each other in South Florida and went to the same comic book store, in fact, for many years before I went off to, uh, to school, um, and he went off to school. He went up to Michigan, and I went to school in Florida. Boy, it's a treat to talk to him. I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, the interview. Yeah, he seems like a very interesting guy. You know, I was doing a little bit of research on him and he talks about his hardships in his teens is what really what pushed him to, you know, work as hard as he did in his 20s. And um, he's saying one thing, you know, the first book he ever wrote got rejected 24 times. Wow, that's and great. Just to turn, for him to turn around and be like, okay, I'm still going to pursue this. I still love this. And then sell his next book, you know, it was crazy. He yeah. published and... You know, it's just insane to me to have that sort of mindset, you know. It's so easy to give up or it's so easy to get discouraged, I, uh, you know. Uh, and uh, any it, when people have that sort of uh, resilience and, and uh, perseverance, it, it, it really is inspiring for all of us. It's like when you see that the Beatles had all these rejection letters from all these labels telling them that there really was no place for their music in the world. You're like, well, maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe not. But, or like Led uh, Zeppelin, like the whole point of their name is like they like some someone said that they were going to crash like a Led Zeppelin. Yeah, exactly. Like, All right, and they they own it, and that's kind of that's kind of Brad's thing too. Is he really owns um, the fact that 
you know, he, he had all these hardships and he kind of wears it on his chest and that's yeah. how he continues to work hard. And then to be able to write a novel and have a bestseller and then be like, you know what, I want to do comic books now and then make that leap to something else in which if you succeed, you'll succeed greatly. And if you fail, you'll crash and burn in front of everybody. And very publicly. That's right. Yeah. And then he took um, his career also took him uh, to television as well. And he's had uh, some no notable successes there. Uh, yes. With, like decoded and mm -hmm. um, lost uh, history, lost history. Yeah. Right. And, I, I, I definitely admire that stuff because I think it's it's uh, got a sort of journalistic flair to it uh, and a sense of history, which I really love. You know, Brad's a devotee of, of history and he really knows, as his book titles suggest, he really knows the secrets and where things are hidden. And uh, he's also, I have to say, an apex nerd. He's like yes. one of, he's a, yes. a king, king nerd. Yes, <laughs> he's truly a, a lover of comic books and he's written comic books. Um, he did, like you said, Green Arrow, he did some Justice League, and then he did uh, Identity Crisis, which is probably his best known one. Yeah. Um, and we'll talk to him a little bit about that today. Um, something that else that I found interesting about him that I read about was um, when he, he, or he worked for Games Magazine, which is kind of like a, like a, like, you know, puzzle and game magazine. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and he did that at night and during the day he was at Columbia law school and to do those two things at the same time, just crazy. But he, you know, he worked to pay for law school and, you know, so he's kind of always had that, you know, just that mindset of, you know, I'm going to go out there, pursue what I want to do and I'm going to do what it takes to do that. Yeah. If he was a, a, a supervillain, he'd be the puzzler. He's definitely, <laughs> he's definitely uh, deciphering and decoding as he goes along. Yeah, I could also see him being like a Riddler type guy too, which I guess yeah. is the you know, they're pretty similar there, but. Absolutely, and then the movie, Identity, um, that book, Identity Crisis, kind of reminds me of of Fincher's, David Fincher's Seven, which it, it could have been the Riddler. I mean, you could have done that movie as a Riddler movie, you know, if the, if the, the, the guy leaving the clues was uh, just, you know, if he made him rhyme a little more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Seven could seven with a with if you just replaced Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman with Batman, it's a yeah. Batman graphic novel. Yeah, that's right. And I think that that's that's kind of uh, you know where we may see the Riddler go in the new oh yeah Batman. You know, I think that 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 Fincher movie uh, was a lot like you know a dark comic book in 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 in, in some notable ways. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, it's funny is that there's. I know we were going to talk a little bit about the news. There's another murder fiction that always remind me of a comic book, and that's Dexter. Uh, because, you know, if you look at the Showtime Dexter, uh, Showtime series Dexter, really, he's Batman. I mean, except he kills people, you know, yeah. and, and he only kills serial, serial killers. But the idea of this guy who, you know, uh, he's, he, he publicly has one identity, but secretly he's going around and he's, exacting vengeance and justice when uh, the cops can't do it, and, but he has a code. I mean, it's very, very Bruce Wayne, very Gotham City. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, I think uh, if, they, if, he live, if Dexter lived in Gotham, you know, him and Batman would probably clash heads a lot about, you know, yeah. everything. Yeah, that, that wouldn't go well. That wouldn't no. go well for Dexter. Because Batman doesn't like anybody else breaking the law except him. He's allowed to break the law, <laughs> yeah. but nobody else. It's, Is it, it's, was it Asriel uh, that took up the cowl and was killing people. He was like, this is the one thing Batman can't do and I'll do it for him. Yeah. Was that Asriel that did that in uh, Nightfall, I think it was? I believe so. That's exactly right. And the, you know, 
if you go back to the very earliest batman you know like sometimes though he was wearing a gun and stuff uh, in a holster <laughs> yeah. you know in the old issues so i think he used to kill people back then and he didn't even blink but you know it's like memento he doesn't remember any of that stuff he doesn't remember anything uh, once and once a comic book is more than five years old he forgets so <laughs> yeah. he, he has to start all over but i'm really excited about dexter coming back you know yeah yeah that's what i was gonna say i, I want to talk about that because you know that ending had the ending of dexter had uh you know some people on both sides saying it was good or bad and so for them to kind of bring it back might give some fans the ending they had wanted you know yeah and it's a reboot so there that it's a really intriguing thing when you say we're going to have the same actor and the same character but it's going to be a reboot you know that raises some interesting questions like you know how that's going to like where exactly in the narrative this takes place how much of the his past is going to be influencing this tale is it's going to you know where in his uh the chronology um but i i've uh i have high hopes for that one because i think that fans don't really mind that anymore you know i think that that would give people pause but if you if you consider like just even like the james bond franchise i mean this is basically like that like i mean mm -hmm. You, you know who he is and you know he's had a certain set of experiences, but it's a little vague about which ones count and which movies and why isn't he getting older and what, you know, why, you know, different things like that. So it's, it's funny. It's always funny to me that people are like so critical on James Bond, like not making sense when you're like, okay, but like six people have played him over the course of like 60 More years. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like <laughs> it, it, it hasn't made sense since after the first one, what was his, was the first one Dr. No or was yeah, it George no. Lazenby that he was technically? La George Lazenby yeah, did one. Um, I think Dr. No was first. The, yeah, I mean, there, there's all these, uh, you know, different bonds. And then, you know, Sean Connery went and came back. And yeah. Mm -hmm. the, um, and then there's that one that's not technically a James Bond movie, but it is a James right. Bond when he's like very, like, I think he's like, when it's like past his prime, obviously, but. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you have also, um, I, I, I consider Austin Powers to be a James Bond movie, but that's just me. <laughs> yeah and then you have the original casino royale from the 60s which makes zero sense because peter sellers was james bond but he wanted to play it seriously but no one would let him so there's like okay. two different like timelines of that movie i don't know james yeah. bond is a very interesting one yeah exactly um and but i think with dexter uh the, the 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 concept at the heart of it the core concept is uh is such a strong one and I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, Michael C. Hall back in that character mm -hmm. and seeing what happens with with that. I always thought he would have been a good daredevil too. Like, uh, oh yeah, when, when I was watching Dexter, I, I thought when he's running around, um, sneaking around in the black costume, that he seemed a, quite a lot like Matt Murdock. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I mean, like like you said, Dexter has very similar qualities to a comic book character. I like that. I hope I have hopes, high hopes for that. Actually, when we were talking about Fincher, that reminds me, I have some very grave news for you, Jeff. What? I saw a, an article this morning that Fincher said a season three of Mindhunter is very unlikely at this point. Yeah, I kind of felt that one coming. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a shame. I I, I, I love that show. Uh, I, I, I like me the too. cast. I like mm -hmm. the setup, all of it. I really, really uh, wish that one had another bite at the apple. Yeah, and season two is just like, just adding on top of season one was just, you know, it was getting better and better. And I was so excited for season three, but it doesn't really look like we're ever going to see that. Um, that's going to be like the show that, you know, when I'm when I'm older, I'm telling my kids, you have to watch the show Mindhunter. And they're going to be like, dad, why am I going to watch this? It got canceled after two seasons, you know? Yeah, it's true.
But anyways, so we have Brad Meltzer today. He's going to be a great guest. You guys have known each other for quite a bit, right? Yeah, I think I met Brad back in like 2010. um, And when we discovered that we had so much in common about where we grew up and even the the places that we bought comics and stuff, we really hit it off. Um, But we haven't been in touch for quite a while. So it's uh, it's going to be awfully nice to... uh, reconnect and i think that we might see him back here more than more than just this one show oh definitely well unless you have anything else let's get to the interview so brad Meltzer, it's been a while old friend it is very good to talk to you welcome to the show uh i am happy to be here i'm 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 expecting that we're going to get our nerd on here and uh, i i uh, hope we uh i hope we do yeah, I, it's it's we'll just jump right into that end of the pool uh, for sure. Now, you know, Brad, uh, you and I figured out back when we met, which I think is about 2010 or so, maybe um, uh, we actually have a geographic connection. We grew up really close to each other. We did. And I forget exactly. Tell me, remind me exactly where you grew up. I, mean, I knew it was down here, but I'm forgetting where. Well, I was sent it in a little rocket ship uh, and it landed uh, in uh, Miramar, Florida. Right. I was going to say, you were by my old comic store. That's what I thought it was. Right. Because my, my first comic store was in Miramar in yeah. Florida, one of the ones. And the guy, and I think I've told you the story before. I never get to tell the story. But the guy who ran the comic store in Miramar, it was one on 163rd Street. That was, that was my fr- first, first one. And then there were a couple others. But this guy in Miramar, um, he, I couldn't drive yet. I was so young. I was like 14 years old, 15 years old, 15 years old, I think I was. And what he would do is back then, I think comic day was on a Friday, I believe. It wasn't yeah. Wednesdays. And he would go and pick out what he thought I would like. Then he would call me and then tell me what the price was. <laughs> and then I would leave the money under the doormat. And then he would come to our like little place and I'd come back from dinner and there would be comics there and the money would be gone. It was like a drug deal, Miami style. <laughs> or like but the tooth fairy. <laughs> It was a, yeah, that's a nice thing, but I guess Miami reveals me, but, um, <laughs> but he was the guy who I'll never forget. He gave me Miracle Man, which I'd never heard of. Oh, um, nice. and he was the one who kind of put that, like, there's a point in comics. I feel like where you're either going to make the transition to adulthood with it, or you're going to leave it behind, right? Mm. You're reading comics and it's fun and you get your male fantasy out and, and good guys beat bad guys. And then somewhere in there, you either find Alan Moore and Swamp Thing and you find Neil Gaiman and you find those and you graduate upward or you didn't. And he was the one who just was like, don't, you know, I, not that I was at risk of leaving. I would have taken anything from him. But I remember he, he was the one who was like, you know, he, I think he gave me Dark Knight. He didn't give me Watchmen, but I think he gave me Dark Knight and he gave me Miracle Man. Wow, that's that's pretty good stuff. Uh, and, and you're right; those the Neil Gaiman Sandman comics and the Alan Moore run on Swamp Thing specifically, those reeled me back into comics actually because I kind of I'd made the leap. For me, it was like uh, rock and roll became bigger and bigger, and comics became smaller and smaller. Um, you know, for me, like in freshman sophomore year of high school, uh, and but it was Alan Moore's Swamp Thing specifically and then after that neil gaiman's sandman that grabbed me and and they just seemed so good and so different than anything i had read and they they had a a a sort of a a completeness to them that uh made it feel mature to me like i made i didn't feel embarrassed to read it well the funny thing for me is i have a child now who's old enough to read those books 
Yeah. I have a younger one who's really young and who's just reading like he's reading Silver Age Legion of Superheroes, right? And he oh. just loves it. He just loves that. And I love having him love it. And he, you know, he said he said two years ago to me, maybe we should go as the fatal five for Halloween. And I was like, no one will know who we are. No one <laughs> and he's like, and he said, Dad, will the fatal five ever be in a in a movie, like on TV or on a movie? And I said, I will promise you the fatal five will never ever be in a movie and then dc made like justice league versus the fatal five and, and I, my mouth hit the floor and i was like i told my son I'm like you are not gonna believe it but I, it was like I, I really believe it's my son's fault like he cried to the universe and the universe answered and gave him that um, but my older one left for college and he left in his backpack i gave him uh gaiman's sandman the first trade Oh, and nice. he and, and I just was like, you need if you want to do well at school, this is what you need. And Neil's a friend, and I've introduced him here at events. But you know, I to me that you you have to like like any good. Let's keep it to the drug dealers. Like the first one's free, and you know where to come for the rest. I needed my son to have that first one, so he knew where to come for the rest. That's great. I think that from the store I did a lot of shopping. That was called Starship Enterprises, and that was over. So the Starship Enterprises was on One Sixty Third Street. Right? Uh -huh. um, there were two, there were two Starship. So Starship Enterprises uh -huh. eventually became, was actually in, in uh, North Miami Beach. And that eventually became, that was Glenn Lightfoot's store who he just, just closed it down. But that was a great store. That was my first Florida store. Wow. I used to bike. I used to, uh, let's do some rock and roll, right? Cause where are we? Right. I used to take my 10 speed bike. Yeah. The only comic store, it was at least, we tried to do the math on what it was. I think it's like 10, I'm not joking. It's like somewhere between five and 10 miles away from my house. Okay. And I used to get on my 10 speed bike, like ET, like graduated <laughs> years. Yeah. I had a Walkman, a bootleg Walkman that was not a Walkman that I bought at Hollywood Beach. And I had the police synchronicity oh. cassette. And I put the, the police synchronicity cassette in my Walkman, which had an external speaker. Whoa. And I would bike the entire ride to Starship Enterprises, which this was- This is again, I mean, it, it was, and literally would of course play, you know, it would take me so long to get there. It was like two hours and biking there and back by the, you know, and shopping. By the time I was done, it was a two hour thing. Yeah. And I would just to get my, my I would do it every Saturday because comics would come on Friday. And, and that album, if you put it on to me to this day, I, it is the, the, soundtrack of the trip to the comic store isn't that great oh that's fantastic and i, I love thinking about when songs came out compared to comics because you don't really don't there's no you don't get that linkage very often like in pop, popular culture coverage or stuff people don't think of it that way but for, like for me um you know the first clash single which is uh white riot came out the same month as the first judge dread comic oh it's funny see that's your rock and roll brain that does that for me I, I think people do do it, but it but it becomes songs from movies. Like we've led, mm -hmm. led to the world of like, um, you know, Elton John singing Tiny Dancer in, in Cameron Crowe movies, you know, yeah. to like that marks the song as opposed to when the song was released. But I'm going to look up Synchronicity by the Police. I'm going to say, I, without looking, I haven't looked yet. I think it's going to be 1984. Um, let's just see when it was. Uh... Let's see what it Eighty three. Okay, so close enough, yeah. right? Eighty three, eighty four. Right? I knew it because I knew what comics I was going for those years. That was the year I moved to to Florida from oh, wow. Brooklyn, and so 
Yeah, I will forever. Even the even the songs that you can't even listen to, like Mother, they yeah, still right. remind me of like uh, of that time period. And just knowing, like, I was going to get the Judas contract, and I was going to get Watchmen, and I was going to, you know, those songs were right there. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, uh, I think uh, Wolverine, the first Wolverine comic book, uh, the one that Chris Claremont and Frank Miller did. Oh, I love those that, covers. Those me, killers. Just the whole series, so good. I think the first one came out the same week as Thriller. I think that's right. I'd tell you, I, I, what I was going to say in my head is 1983, because that was my, I bought that comic when I lived in Brooklyn and I moved in 1983. Um, and I remember watching The Moonwalk that same year. Yeah. Isn't so that, that is exactly right. We have just, we are, by the way, we have officially become like middle-aged. In my, <laughs> we're, we're a one- like angry kid away from get off my lawn right now. I'm going to put on some uh, socks and sandals and start complaining about the government 24 Listen, hours a day. I live in Florida and I'm doing it from Florida. I am on brand here. <laughs> You've been on brand since you were a kid. Like that's, that's <laughs> the thing. You've been, we've been like uh, retirees in Florida since we were children. The that's thing is though, is the only, but the, the, like, we should talk about it because it is the cultural shift. Like back then comics were not cool. I so mean, not they cool. were cool to me. I thought they were the, I mean, the, the, the gene that I was missing is, I think people used to like hide their comics back then because they weren't cool. I was so ultra nerdy that I actually thought they were cool. And like, I remember having the only, I used to wear a Superman and a Batman shirt to school. No one wore one. The Superman one was from an iron-on store in the mall that I found, which was easy to find. You could find a Superman shirt. Love that. You could not find a Batman logo shirt and I, in fact, went in 1984 or 85. It was right when Dark Knight came out. I forget what year it came out. But um, was it 86? Right. Maybe I was 16. Yeah. So it could have been 86. Right. Oh, that's right. Because 86. Right. Right. And so I went to visit my uncle in San Francisco and in Berkeley on Telegraph. They used to have like street vendors. And one guy took the cover. I think it's issue three of that, that kind of like Miller bat symbol. Right. And silk screened it on sweatshirts and was selling them in California. And I was like, I must have that. And I bought it and I cut the sleeves off and I cut the belly off. So Jeff, I'm wearing a dark Knight Batman belly shirt that I wore to <laughs> a school. I had like, like my, you could see, you couldn't see my belly button, but it was, it was close. And I wore that to school at least once every week for the entire year thinking I was cool and not caring that anyone didn't like comics at all. And now, of course, you know, comics are a cool that's, thing, and that's how you somehow, oddly, in Hollywood especially, get street cred, which is a, an embarrassment that people are, you know, like nice. tourists are coming in, but um, <laughs> it is pretty spectacular to watch that shift. Yeah, it, it is unbelievably different than it used to be, because there's, there's two things that were concrete, accepted, you know, inalienable uh, assumptions and the one was comics are not cool and two is if hollywood ever gets their hands on anything that comic books have done they'll ruin it and they, they do will it, ruin it and they'll do it to to vex me they will punish me <laughs> the things that i love most they will take and they will they will rape them and they will be terrible um, well, I, you know it's funny <laughs> i actually thought uh, my first panel i ever did at san diego like first first big one we did it was like this amazing panel I did with my friend Chip Kid and some other people that were, and Paul Fide was on there. I mean, it was a great panel. Oh, and someone asked it from the audience in an industry that prides itself on being like, and attracts outsiders that were all outsiders. 
does having it be so embraced by the mainstream ruin it for you? <laughs> and I was like, that's a friggin' spectacular question. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's a, that's a, that is a, I mean, I can write, we can do, give it to creators around comics and people can write essays and we could turn that into a book. The answer is so beautiful. Yeah. Um, but I, but I did love that idea. Isn't that funny? Like, uh, and you're right. Cause shirts were even hard to get. Like if you wanted to wear a Batman symbol shirt, like it, when the, the film came out in 89, like that was the first time they, they became widely available. And I remember being like really geeked about the idea that, wow, I can wear a Batman shirt. Like, no, no, now, no. But you, have you ever heard my Batman t-shirt story from the 89? I'm not sure. I don't know if I told you that because okay, you haven't heard this. So I'm not sure. I didn't know if we were eating dinner, if I told you. So yeah, this is a crazy story. So, so again, because of my belly shirt, I'm convinced, of course, that I'm, you know, going to set the trends for all of America. So 1989 comes. I'm a freshman in college. I, I'm, I'm working that summer in the Senate Judiciary Committee as an intern making photocopies. Okay. Wow. And, um, and I, I had no money to pay for being there. My parents said, you have to have a job. You can't go unless you can pay for it. And the Batman, Michael Keaton movie was opening. And I was sitting with my girlfriend's father that year. And he said to me, this is right before we left in the summer when the movie opened. And I said to him, I'm telling you, and I know it sounds so obvious now, but no one knew it back then. There was no merchandising back then for films even. And I said, everyone in America is going to buy and want a Batman shirt when this movie comes out. And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, everyone in America is going to want a Batman shirt. And he says to me, and he hears me mouthing off and he says, you know what, Brad, you're talking so much crap. He says, how about this? I'll front you $3,000 to go buy the Batman shirts you want and you buy them and you sell them. How many think you can sell? I'm like, I can sell so many of them. He's like, how many think you can sell? I'm like, I don't know, like 500 of them. He goes, you're going to be able to sell a thousand of them. I'm going to back you. So we find out who from Warner brothers is huh. making Batman shirts. I go and his, his custom, his, he, he owned a restaurant at the time. It was called Jumbos. So we ordered a thousand Batman t-shirts on an account for Jumbos because it was a business account. He shipped them to my dorm room where I was staying for my internship in Washington, D.C. And I had a roommate from like um, Auburn who like walks into the room and I have a thousand Batman t-shirts. Now, here's what I do, Jeff, is I realize, you know what? I, it's moving a thousand is a lot. Back then there were local theaters that, you know, it wasn't everything wasn't AMC or like Regal. Sure. Uh, it was a mom and pop theater organization that had, uh, I think they were called key theaters in DC mm. and they had like a seven or eight theaters. And I went down, I've looked them up in the phone book and I went and made an appointment, walked into the place. And I said, listen, I have a thousand Batman t-shirts. Why don't you let me into your theaters and I'll sell them in your theater. So when people come out of the movie, when they're all excited and jazzed, they'll buy the shirts. And he, I said, I just want to be in your theater so I can get to the people who are leaving the movie. He says, you know what? That's a great idea. I'm a 19-year-old kid. <laughs> and he says, I'm going to do you one better. I'm going to put you in all my theaters. So you stay in this one theater in Georgetown, and I'm going to put you in all the other theaters in my other eight theaters, and we're going to get it covered. I'm like, that sounds great. So Batman movie opens, biggest crazy weekend of all time yeah. changes the way that we market and merchandise films forever. And That's everyone right. in America wants a Batman t-shirt that right now is not made yet because the demand has far outpaced what the supply is, which is amazing. And I, and so I, in that first weekend of Batman movie opens, I sell a hundred t-shirts on Friday and Saturday 
and Sunday in that theater, which is a crazy amount of shirts. I mean, yeah. it, just a, in one theater. And I'm thinking, well, he's got my other shirts in all of his other theaters. So he's got nine theaters. I've sold 900 shirts and made like $10,000 in three days. I'm going to, I'm like in debt from, from college. I'm going to, this is it. I'm, I got my way out. So I called the guy on Monday. I'm like, let me get your count. How many did you sell in the other theaters? And the guy says to me, actually, I'm sorry. I forgot to put them out. <laughs> now here's what happens. Now, Batman bootleg t-shirts by Monday are flooding everywhere. And I know oh. it's, t- it, I, I basically have something that is not valuable for very long because sure. as all trends go, it's going to go fast. And I'm now stuck and I've missed opening weekend with like nine, trees. You have a nine hundred. Right. I literally have Christmas trees on the day after Christmas. Exactly <laughs> right. And I have uh, 900 Batman shirts. I'm like, Oh shit. So I, the people who ran the house, the Senate judiciary committee at the time said, listen, they knew I was in trouble. They're like, go in this office. And they put me in like the general counsel's office. He was just about to start. And they said, you take care of what you need to do. And I went through the phone book and I called every t-shirt store, card store, like anyone that sold anything that was like Spencer gifts, anyone that sold anything that was pop culture. And there weren't a lot of stores then. And I would call them up and I'd say, listen, I have Batman shirts. If you want them, they'd say, great. How much? And I'd say $10 a piece. And they're like, are you kidding? That's retail. I, I need a wholesale price. I'm like, listen, I'm telling you, I can deliver the shirts right now today. And I know you can't get them for another week. So either you get them or you don't. They're like, no, I'm not taking a kid. And I'm like, okay, goodbye. And they're like, wait, 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 wait. We'll take them. Wow. And it took, me, it took me three weeks. And I had to sell in a, in a, my girlfriend and I went to two different theaters. And we, over the course of the next three weeks to a month, moved 900 Batman t-shirts hustling. But I made so much money. I walked into the bank in Washington, D.C., you know, put down like $10,000 in cash with a Miami driver's license. Guess what they think I'm doing. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, but we, but literally that bat, those Batman t-shirts fed me and let me have that internship and money into the next year for college. Wow. It's amazing to think of what a cultural moment that was too. Right. I mean, like people now where you, you have movies come out like, like Avengers Endgame, And obviously it's a, it's a major landmark moment. But at that time, it was really kind of an unprecedented thing when when that Batman movie came out and there was a Prince soundtrack and there was all the T-shirts and all the tie-ins. And, uh, you know, you look at that cast. I mean, that movie was, it really did become a template for everything that's happened since the superhero cinema. I mean, the only thing, the only superhero movie you really had before that that was of scale was was Superman. Superman. Yeah, yeah, yeah Superman. I mean, but and, and the thing that was different about this is I mean, Superman was magical, right? right? I mean, that was that's still my favorite, right? But it's great. But but no one could crack Batman. Oddly, like you can make someone look like Superman. The flying was, of course, like a technology issue, right? But I remember um, my roommate Judd Winnick in college. I remember he came back from what was either Thanksgiving or Christmas break with a videotape, and they had aired on New York, like on you know local NBC, whatever, uh, the first trailer. And it was, and when I say trailer, it was a it couldn't have been a 10 second clip. It was that. a scene where he crashes through the thing on the Joker holding Vic, you know, comes in for the window when he's got Vicky Vale, like he crashes through the thing, lands, shoots the thing. Joker looks to like, you know, see where it goes. And then that was the clip. And then you saw the Batmobile go off. So that's yeah. all you got. 10 seconds. We watched that videotape and we would rewind it and watch it over and over to dissect every detail including realizing, of course, we saw that someone had finally done the ears on the cow correctly, like they were pointy, not Adam West style, although we love our Adam West here. 
Um, but even that they had changed the logo and had that little kind of like square part at the bottom of the, of, of the middle thing in the, in the bat logo. And we were, and now of course we're all like, Oh, you know, there's 50 Easter eggs by the time the first thing airs, but we were dissecting it like it was a Zapruder film. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And like to think if you told any of us then that there would be a guardians of the galaxy movie, we would have just, our heads would have fallen off. I mean, it was just no, so- I, I, we, It's our constant conversation is if I, my, my son will say to me to this day, every time we go see, like when we went to see Endgame, he's like, if I went back in time and I showed you like Avengers Endgame, what would happen? I said, I would die right there. You wouldn't be born. That's yeah. what happened. <laughs> I would die in that spot and you would never be born. That's a time conundrum. I don't know if that, it's a paradox, isn't it? <laughs> right. Depends uh, if you believe the end game rule of time travel. What was the best comic book that you ever got? Like old comic book. My, my best buy when I was in Florida was there was a, there was a, f- a flea market that the um, Seminole Indian Reservation in Davie. I went there. Oh yeah, I was there. And uh, there was a silver, uh, like a silver work truck that was in, uh, backed into a stall and the back of it was open and there was a guy uh, who looked a lot like Captain Lou Albano. Um, from the the Cindy Lauper video, uh, and he was selling comics, and there was a small stack of comics. He wasn't selling comics. There was some comics among the things he was selling, uh, and a small stack. And I picked it up, and on top was a giant size uh, Dra- Dracula number one. Num- then there was a giant size Spider Man number two. Wow! And then there was a X Men giant size number two, oh. which is the Neil Adams reprint, and then. Yeah. X-Men number one. Oh, come on. You're kidding. Then there was like, uh, you know, a devil dinosaur and, uh, you know, like a, a, a Jonah Hex. And the comics were 25 cents each. And, and I <laughs> grabbed them all up and I put the X-Men number one at the bottom. And of I said, course, how yes. much for all of these? And he's like, $2. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. You win. I, you should have let me go first because you know you have the ace. You have the joker. <laughs> you, got the, you have the wild card. There's nothing that can beat that. Mine, mine was much smaller. Mine was um, the two books that, were, that I really, really chased. I remember was DC Comics Presents 26, which was the first new Teen Titans. And then Teen Titans number four, which was oddly the expensive one because it had the Justice League on the cover. Oh, wow. And at the time, I remember what, I just missed it. I kind of picked up when Doom Patrol was in the book. I think it's, you know, somewhere in the, it, like, it's under issue 20, but it's maybe even issue 12. But it, you know, it's well past issue one, two, and three, and four. And, and I remember both of those books were $5 each, Ooh. which was more than anything that I could afford at the time. $5 yeah. was a ton of money. And it took me, I got a $5 allowance every week. And I just, I basically just, I would always go to the comic store and buy my weekly books. And then I had to save with whatever was left because I used to take whatever was left. And it was, the rule was um, you can get four books for 25 cents each, or you get five for a dollar. And I would just take whatever I had left and buy the five for a dollar. But the best one I ever got was when I graduated college, I really wanted at the same time, the other $5 item that I was chasing was George Perez did these justice league of America postcards Oh yeah, and I thought they were so gorgeous. They were like the most beautiful works of art, but they were five dollars, which was again, you know, comics them were a buck, buck twenty-five. I'm like, I can't afford it, so I never bought them. And then they were impossible to find. And I spent the next—I'm not joking—ten years trying to refine them, going to any local convention. The convention that used to be at the Howard Johnson's in Florida, down the at the, yeah. you know, no one had them. No one. There was no internet, so it was impossible. So I graduate college. 
I'm finally making a real paycheck. And I take one of my first paychecks and I take an ad in Comic Buyer's Guide in the classified mm -hmm. section. And I say, anyone out there have the George Perez postcards, please let me know. I'd love to buy them. And all of a sudden, all these really nice, and this is when you realize how nice the comic book community is, all these strangers start sending me, here, here are mine. I don't even want them. Here you go. Send them for oh. free. And one guy writes to me, hey, Brad, here you go. I tell you that I also have a page of George Perez original art from the Teen Titans. Uh -oh. I'm getting divorced from my wife and I, she doesn't want me to have it. And I, it needs a good home. So if you send me $5, I'll send you the page of art. Uh, that's and, I'm like, and I'm like, this is a scam. I'm like, this is a bullshit scam. This guy scammed me for five bucks, but on the risk that it's right, here's my $5. I put a $5 bill in the mail and send it to him and whatever. Two weeks later, a package comes and I open it up and it has a note and it says, hey, Brad, what's written on the back of this page was always there. I never put it there, but it's how I knew this is meant to be yours. And I turn the piece of, and it is truly a page from New Teen Titans, George Perez Hart. And on the back of it, in big letters, not small, it says, Brad. Whoa. And I'm like, what the, and, and I still have it. It's one of my favorite things. Oh my gosh. Like, uh, that's fantastic. What, what's, uh, like, who's in the, the art? Um, it's, it's the, it, I believe it's the, it's the issue where, remember right after um, Judas Saga, there's that cover where Aqualad's in the cover holding Aqualad? Yeah. And it's that, it's at one of those pages from there and it has Nightwing in it and it has Aqualad in it and it's awesome. And it's, you know, oh, there's no, it's not a big splash. It's just storytelling. But it's just, it's literally, it was the first page of comic art I ever had. Oh, and that's very cool. That's very cool. Yeah. I always liked Aqualad's costume. I don't know. Him and Monel, they had, they were like kind of like the reverse Superman costumes, you know. The yeah, costume. they were. They did have a, I forgot they, they did look alike. Although I liked when What's His Face did that. Uh, oh, I'm thinking of Aquaman when they did that. They did that. Who was the guy? I remember when they did that blue, that one that never uh, stayed. I remember thinking costume. that was so cool that that blue costume at the time. I remember thinking like, that's going to stay forever. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. That's like, yeah. What? That just didn't. Yeah. I loved it though all. at the time. But yeah. Like a customized a cool van. The thing was, is everyone had short shorts back then. That was the style. Short shorts were the style. Yeah. I don't know about They're that. Galactus. Galactus had shorts, like, in, yeah, exactly. you know, like, what the hell? Like you eat planets and you can't even wear long pants. No, everyone was doing the Winnie the Pooh. So let me ask you this. You, you and I have discussed this. And I know your answer, unless it's changed and I doubt it has. Brad Meltzer, what's the best comic book ever published? Yeah, so you and I, we've talked about this. So I, listen, I think if you ask me the best story, I have different answers. But the single issue comic book that has the most sheer gall <laughs> is um, Superman versus Muhammad Ali. Superman and versus Muhammad Ali. That's exactly. fantastic. It is, it is true. And the reason it's so, and, and you know what? Here's the, the best part of it is I just had my son read it in the last probably six months. And I'm like, he doesn't really even know who Muhammad Ali is. So I have to kind of tell him. He knows a little bit from like the heroes books I write, like he's in there. Yeah. He certainly knows who Superman is, but he is literally as, as we were when we were like nine years old, he's like, Muhammad Ali can't beat Superman. And I'm like, read the book. He's like, Muhammad Ali can't beat Superman. He's reading page one. I'm like, read the book. Page two, he's like, Muhammad Ali cannot. I'm like, read the book. And then the great part about the book is they put Superman under a red sun. Yeah. And, and the other thing we should just say is it's a physically incredibly big book. It's right. like the size of your, like a big monitor for a computer. 
Like it's, it's oversized. It's one of these big giant oversized books. That's like this, it, it, you can't even put it in a long box because it's so big. Right. And on the cover, they put real stars on the cover. So when you see everyone who's sitting in the ring as Superman and Muhammad Ali are facing off, there's like everyone from like the sweat hogs to Ed Asner's there. So like, I mean, it's just everyone. like a 70s who's no one, no one, there's not a single person except for maybe Lucille Ball that my kids would even know in yeah. the crowd that they could name. Not a, Jimmy Carter's there, like, but they're, it's, it's a they're 70s who's who. They're so random. And, and I actually was reading about like they had to get approval from everyone who's on it. Yeah, it took forever. And that's why they couldn't reprint it. They couldn't reprint it for many, many years. They only put out a, 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 a real nice fancy edition just like maybe what, ten, uh, six, seven years ago. Yeah, they finally redid it. But yeah, they could. And, they, and in fact, I, I was reading it. I should have sent it to you. I don't know if you saw, but they said that there were a couple people in the end whose likenesses they couldn't get. And then they changed them to like Ed Asner or the Sweat Hogs or God knows who it was. Because they could, you know. They had like the Jackson Five in there. It's just so. It's I'm like it's the best party that never happened. It's it's fantastic. Yeah, and then the scene is it like a, an arena and, and Superman and, and Muhammad Ali are squaring off, and it's a wraparound cover. So the, the they are on the front of the cover, but if you held the book up and and opened it so you could see the back cover as well, the, the image is continuous uh, across. And yeah, it's it's interesting the people that have the really prominent spots. Like I remember Telly Savalas. And like right. some major real estate, like it's like Telly Savalas and uh, the the Carter family, uh, right? Right. Jimmy you know, Carter was Carter like administration, that. and the the person that I think in the end the the person that refused to clear their image was John Wayne, uh, and, <laughs> and so in uh, Neil Adams just put a mustache on him because he said, you know what. You never see John Wayne with a mustache. So if I put a mustache on it, they can't say it's John Wayne. Uh, and that's all he did to him. Um, so he's there and it just looks like, you know, John Wayne with a mustache. But uh, yeah, the Jackson 5 and the Sweat Hogs. Yeah, there are a lot the of sweat real hogs estate. are on there, which is just Major spectacular. But, but the thing that's Cher. so good, Sonny's hair on there, that's right. I mean, I, and the thing is, it's like a who's who of if you were a middle-aged person, you would know. And again, none of them are, <laughs> no one, they're all either dead or unknown now, which is so sad. But the thing that's so great about it is so my son's reading. He's like, this is silly, dad. It's silly. It's silly. It's silly. Even the aliens, like aliens come down and they're going to like, yeah. you know, enslave the earth if Superman doesn't fight Muhammad. Like it's just an absurd setup. Right. But the thing that's so great is eventually at some point in all this chaos, Superman and Muhammad Ali have to fight and they're under a red sun. And Neil Adams is at the height of his powers as an artist. He truly is at the height of his powers. Like he's, there's, I, and he, and I remember I watched with my son when he got to the fight and I won't ruin everything that happens, but I will say you see Superman. Yeah. The, to me, the best page beyond the knockout is there's a, there's a, you turn the page and there's Superman is lying on a stretcher, mm -hmm. black and blue and bloodied. And you never saw Superman like this. Right. And it's so brutal and it's so brutish and it's so, and my son was literally like, <gasps> even now, all these years later with everything he's seen and he's seen, you know, he's watched Iron Man and like, you know, like he's watched Endgame. He's seen it all. Like, right. And he still was like, took his breath away. And, and to this day, if I walk downstairs right now, I can show you there was a Superman Muhammad Ali statue in his bedroom, you know, because Judd bought the, the big, beautiful statue they made of it. Yeah. And my son proudly displays it because he knows that that is indeed 
there is no comic with more gall than that one on this planet. It was the best. And at the time when it came out, you know, it was uh, the best-selling DC comic book in history at the time, if you go by international sales, because they didn't have a lot of international printings of DC comics. But at that time, that was the single best-selling issue, which is a nice thing for Neil. Uh, and it's also really nice that they reprinted it. Otherwise, it would kind of be a really kind of a lost artifact. I mean, you can get it, but it, it, it wouldn't have the, uh, the stature it has now, which is as, according to Brad Meltzer and myself, the greatest comic book ever published. It's a good one, man. It's good. I'm actually, it, it, I still, I'm thinking of it now. And, just, and there's also this wonderful image at the end. The, the close of the book is the best because Superman and finally saved the day and they, and they do this giant, massive double page yeah. spread. And it's like Muhammad Ali in this bright white shirt, as I remember, and Superman yeah. in like hand on his hip. And he literally shakes his hand. He's like, Superman, we are the greatest. And instead of saying, I am the greatest. Yeah. And it's so good. And it's, and again, when it's giant size, you know, you can read it online and download it, but you're never going to experience like the, you know, it was like reading a poster because when, especially when you're a little kid, it was like turning the pages of a poster to see it. Yeah. And Superman, so we are the greatest was so good. Yeah. It was so vibrant that it, they look like lit from within uh, the yeah, two of them. It, it was great. It's like the most heroic thing I've ever seen. There's, there's a, there's a, a, a point in that story too, that I absolutely adore. And, and it's one that meant a lot to me as a kid because there was such a, a social conscience in comic book writing. Uh, um, th there was a lot of, you know, messages about like social justice, and and these days that that has a different uh, connotation when people say that. But at that time, it was coming from things like uh, Jack Kirby's innate patriotism and Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill's belief in you know just uh, equality and and opportunity and things like that. Uh, and it came across in subtle ways sometimes. And one of the the best nuanced ways I think is in that particular issue where as they're getting ready for this fight which is going to be broadcast to all the planets uh in in the uh, universe uh the announcer mentions that superman will be wearing his familiar red and blue costume because uh for uh, some aliens it's difficult to tell humans apart uh you know despite their skin colorings these these humans look exactly the same to them essentially ah that's and, i forgot that detail and and i'm i I just loved that. You know, I That's just thought that was really cool. You know, well, that, listen, a, again, you have, you know, Denny O'Neill and, and Neil Adams in particular, were, they were literally fighting the good fight for social justice. You know, people are always now like, oh, get your politics out of my comics. Like, what do you think Black Panther was? What do you think Stan Lee was? Yeah. I mean, Stan Lee, when he died, I wrote, um, they had me write one of his obituaries for Entertainment Weekly, and they were like, and I, I went and reread all the old Stan soapboxes and they're literally about like bigotry and hatred and how oh. if you hate a man because of the color of his skin or his religion or because he's Jewish or Muslim or anything else. And he was just like all out there saying, this is what these books are about. What do you think the X-Men is about? Yeah. But like a, you know, an allegory for racism. What do you think that like all these things and Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams were of course coming right off of their run on, um, or about Green to hit their run on, on Green Lantern and Green Arrow. And, they just, the thing that struck me when I reread the book with my son recently is even when Muhammad Ali is in the neighborhood, like walking around the quote unquote people, you right. feel that this is not just like, oh, here's just, you know, a black man. Like they were working to make you feel the black man's experience. Yeah. That, that was first and it was right at the front. Yeah. And then they have Clark Kent and Lois Lane walking around the neighborhood and, and like talking about it in a way, in, in ways that are, 
you know, uh, pertinent to the, the social issues of the day. And, and it looked, it didn't look like a squeaky clean 1960s DC comics. No, version, that's right. It was, it version. was not polished. That's exactly right. It was a it, real neighborhood. Yeah, absolutely. It was a good stuff. You know, um, Neil Adams, I told him, you know, this is the best comic book ever, ever done. And he goes, yeah, 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 that's right. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, yeah, oh, that's good that you, you recognize that. And I'm like, oh, yeah. yeah. He's well, like, no. There you have it. <laughs> uh, listen, God bless. I mean, that was, but I, I love when you can get someone at the height of their powers doing like the height of their powers. That's, that, that's it. But yeah. it's, so, it's so good. It's still so good. Well, it's, uh, you know, I know that we're kind of run up against some time here. I know that you're going to have to go pretty soon, but I, I, there's another, to me, like, you know, your book that you wrote, Identity Crisis, it was one of the best comic books series ever written, one of the best stories ever told. And I know it was a, a polarizing one uh, experience, but, um, or polarizing reaction to it, I, I guess, in some ways, but a great success and, and um, one that a lot of people like me think is you know, one of the best things ever written uh, in a comic before. Well, I appreciate Listen, that book is, um, I, I, it's been, I think we came out in like 19, oh, we come out 1990, I mean, uh, 2000, I think 2004. So we're coming out, you know, we're, we're going to assume be at like 20 years for this book. We're in the 15 year mark and over that now. And the thing that's so crazy to me is it is still one of the number one things and not people's old copies, brand new copies. Mm-hmm. They just reprinted another new one. And that to me is like, you can have people that, you know, will tell you you're the greatest or they'll tell you you're the worst. And in comics, neither of them can ever be true, right? Like it shouldn't be. Right. Um, but I, if you told me that, you know, you know, some close to 15 years after that book is published, that people are still buying it and it's still selling the way it sells. And they're still bringing it to me and saying, this is the thing that got me into comics. That is the thing that kind of caught me off guard. Cause you can't think of that. Like, even in your biggest narcissistic moment, you can't think of that stuff. Um, but it is the number one thing said to me is this is the book that got me back into comics after I left. Wow. Actually the yeah. perfect, the perfect bow for like what we were talking about at the start, right? Like that thing that yeah. makes you, and not to put myself in Alan Moore's or, or Frank Miller's or anyone's, those guys are doing beyond anything we could ever do. But, uh, you know, uh, full credit to DC for just letting me, um, you know, it was post 9-11 and we were trying to find an answer that would make people feel the, the true reality and the dangers that our heroes were going into. And I just, and they had, you know, obviously it's a, you know, a story deals with some super adult issues yeah. Um, at a time when no one was dealing with any of those issues. And we took yeah. a, lot of, a lot of heat for that, but I still maintain like the medium must be able to deal with hard issues or the medium will go nowhere. It was, for me, it was like seeing, um, you know, Seven or something, uh, or like uh, if, if, if the, the, the Fincher movie, because it, it had this, this, this really dark power and, and there was a, um, uh, as a reader, you didn't know how far the story was going to go, and it went to places you didn't expect. And, and um, there was a real thrill to it because the 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 architecture of the story and the the sophistication of the dialogue and the uh, nuance of the of the uh, the characters made it just top top notch. So even as it got darker and darker, it was harder and harder to put down. So I mean, it was uh, it was really 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 well. No, done. I appreciate it. It's funny, my um. Uh, you know, it was DC gave me a list at the time of all the heroes that I could kill. They're like, here's right. the kill list. You can kill whoever you want. 
and, and I, I still have it. Like, and it was, you know, there were huge names on it. I could have killed all these names to get, and that would have like, I guess, moved books back then and, you know, been a big <laughs> deal. And, and, and they said, well, who do you want? And they said, you can have anyone you want. And basically I was like, well, here's who I want. I want Captain Boomerang and I want the monocle and I want, you know, uh, the calculator and I want, and they were like, who do you want? And, <laughs> but I knew that if we dealt with these smaller characters that we could, you know, if I kill Superman or I kill Batman, we all know they're coming back. They're right. going to come back. Don't. And I wanted it, you know, Dan DiDio, I remember was right after 9-11 happened. And he said, it was that time when everyone was thanking you'd see a policeman or a fireman, yeah. policewoman on your plane or, or in the airport. And you'd be like, thank you. Thank you. Anyone in uniform. Thank you. Yeah. And he said, and the reason we did that is because we realized after 9-11 that every time they put their uniforms on, they might not come back. They might not come back. And Dan said to me, I want that feeling for our heroes in the DC universe that every time these characters put on their costumes, their uniforms, that they may not come back. Right. Um, and the truth was, I said to him, well, I don't have a story for that. I don't have an idea. And, and, but he let me think on it. And, um, and eventually enough time went by that I was like, I got it. I got it. I got it. Let me yeah. go do it. And, and instead of writing a seven issue, you know, monthly series, I'm a novelist. I just wrote the whole thing. Right. I didn't even tell Dan, um, what happens to Batman in it. I didn't even tell him. And then as the, as a, I would every month put like a, a thing in my calendar that would say hand in the next issue because I didn't want them to think that if I, I felt like if I handed in all seven, they would say like, Oh, you didn't really try that hard on it. But I like, I wouldn't hand it in until I wrote it that way. I could foreshadow stuff. I was like, it's a novel. I wanted to read it as a novel. And, and so when I was about to hand in like the sixth or seventh issue, I said to Dan, Oh man, wait till you see what I do with Batman in this issue. And he said, well, what are you talking about? I'm like, Oh, I don't want to, you know, and he's like, no, no, you, you have to tell me, I need to know this stuff, what it is. And I thought, Oh shit, this is where it's all going to come off. Like it's all falling apart here. And to Dan's great credit, he was, he fought for it and said, this is what we need to do. This yeah. is a far more realistic approach to the heroes. And he fought for it and let it happen. And um, you know, the story was in my mind, just always the better for that. Yeah. And great, great artwork. You know, oh, Rag, it, Rags' birthday was yesterday. Um, oh. Rags Morales drew the crap out of that book. He yeah. drew the, I mean, that guy, I remember he, in the scene where Elongated Man is cradling his dead wife, Sue. Yeah. That's the first um, thing I thought of. That's funny. That's I, I literally thing. wrote to him and said, in the script, it says, I want you to be directly above him. I want it to be just like that scene in Shawshank where Robbins is screaming mm. at the sky directly above him and he wrote to me and said brad let me do a kind of diagonally downward shot that you know like lower the camera a little bit instead of directly above and i'm like trust me do it trust me rags i know what i'm doing i put in direction everything in the whole book is all directed and he said how about this i'll do it my way you don't like it i'll draw it your way i thought that's totally fair the sure. first issue we've ever worked together we don't know each other the whole book was written right i mean i, I wrote the whole book by the time he got the first issue and it was fax machines back then there were no jpegs and the fax comes through, he sends it to me and I called him up and he said, what do you think? And I go your way. Yeah. And that was it. And I just shut up and I was like, don't listen to anything. I say the rest of the book, do your thing. That's great. And then that's that shot, uh, that, that moment. It, it's a lot like the Neil Adams, uh, Superman on the, on the cot, uh, you know, kind of laid out battered just because the emotional rawness of it, you know, the, the, the pathos of it. Yeah. Oh, when I saw, when I saw it, it was one of those moments where I didn't realize what I wrote. That's mm -hmm. how good it was. It was beyond yeah. like, cause whenever you get a comic yeah. back and you write, like some things hit exactly as you think and some things are lesser and some things are better. 
And then some things you're like, you're physically moved by that. You're like, oh, oh shit, I don't even realize what we were doing. Right. And you that was one of those ones way. where I was like, I was like, get out of the way. Yeah. Don't, don't tell him to do anything else. I said to him, just do your thing. Like you are clearly seeing this exactly and better in fact than I'm seeing it. And that's why you're the artist and I'm the writer. Yeah. Well, that's such a magic part of comics that, that, that uh, collaborative, um, you know, the elusive collaborative spark that leads to something that's more than the sum oh, of its parts. Actually, I, I firmly believe that that book under any other artist would not have been that book. That Rags just, he was the one who could do the emotion. And without the emotion, that story falls apart. That's, that's amazing. Well, you know, we do a thing here, you know, on Mindspace called Essential Shelf, where every week we add one book to it. And it's the recommend, not, it's more than the recommended. It's the, it's, it's essential. These are the essential comics. You have to have these if you want to read comics and dig them and uh, enjoy the medium. And uh, Identity Crisis is right, is going to be this week's book. And it's going up right next to Watchmen and V for Vendetta and, and uh, Give Me Liberty and a lot of heavy hitters. So well, I love you for it. I appreciate it. Very kind of you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Brad Meltzer, what a what a treat. It's been too long and, and I, I hope you'll come back. I actually have, I want to challenge you. I have a mystery that I'd like to pose to you at some point, but we'll save that for another day. That's a deal. I can't wait. All right, All right man. Well, thanks again. Thank you, brother. All right, take care. Well, that interview went really well, the two of y'all. Um, I could tell it was like old friends getting back together. Well, it was... It, I, I'm not even sure it qualifies as an interview because I just we, we just started geeking out and I kind of forgot that uh, we were we were recording the whole thing. Uh, yeah, as you can tell, I really enjoy talking to Brad and we have a lot of uh, shared affinities and uh, passions. Uh, you know, one of the things we didn't talk about. Yeah, it was his books. Right? His books. Yeah, like uh, so. Let's let's stop for uh, let's pump the brakes here, folks. Mind spacers. Brad Meltzer has two new books that you can buy on his very, very crowded bookshelf. Yes. Uh, the, the two latest entries on that bookshelf would be I Am Anne Frank and I Am Benjamin Franklin, part of the I Am series that really focuses on bringing historical figures to life in a personal way for young readers at a time when they uh, are hungry and ready to connect with the powerful legacies of those historical figures. Exactly. He had, he had said that he wanted to write books for his kids to have heroes that they could look up to um, that weren't necessarily just famous for being famous. Yeah. And so other titles have been Amelia Earhart. He did one on Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King. You know, the list goes on and on. Uh, Neil, Neil Armstrong. Yeah. Um, and uh, he, he just wants, um, you know, like kids to have heroes that they can look up to and be, be relatable. And so one thing that he has said is, you know, when he was writing Amelia Earhart, he had told his daughter about um, how, you know, she was, she flew around the world in an airplane and to his daughter, you know, that didn't really seem like quite the feat because everybody can uh, do that yeah. now. Um, sure. But something he had brought up or something, but then when he, when he told his daughter the story about how Amelia Earhart at a very young age had built her own roller coaster in her backyard, you know, that stuck out to her. And sure. so having, you know, have, having qualities like that or the Wright brothers, how they failed over and over and over again, their planes kept crashing and crashing, but it, you know, it was the failures that allowed them to soar. Um, you know, it's, it's good for kids to have, you know, heroes like that. Absolutely. And to bring them to life. That's one of uh, Brad's gifts as a writer is to take someone that lived and died 
uh, in another time and and to uh, to capture in a portrayal of them something that's authentic enough to to really connect with young readers and and do all the things you were just talking about. So definitely check out the I Am uh, series uh, by Brad Meltzer, the two new latest entries, and Frank, Benjamin Franklin. Mm-hmm. And you can get them now. They're on sale, available now. And um, for the essential shelf, which we, this is sort of a, a I guess, anticlimactic, or maybe uh, we, we had a little spoiler, is that obviously we mentioned earlier, it's going to be Identity Crisis, which is the, the wonderful, uh, you know, intense, like really dark uh, yes. story uh, that Brad Meltzer wrote uh, for DC Comics. And it, uh, it presents the murder of a well-known and uh, long-standing uh, comic book character and proceeds from there as a whodunit that takes DC Comics characters into some really dark territory. And not everybody liked the book. You know, like the some people didn't like the portrayal of uh, classic characters like Dr. Light, you know, who's one of the first Justice League villains uh, in this is depicted in a way that he he's a sexual predator. Um, mm. And uh, the uh, ultimately, I, can't, I don't want to give anything away. Ultimately, the mystery leads in directions that uh, will point the finger at a guilty party who is another longstanding famous DC character. And, and that was shocking to some people which character was actually responsible for the murder. Sorry, I, that was a little kind of a convoluted way of saying it, but I don't want to uh, undermine the story's drama. But uh, it is a good one, controversial or not. I think it's uh, it belongs on the essential shelf for sure. And like like he was saying, it kind of features a lot of characters that people my age might not recognize immediately. Like you said, Doctor Light. You know, I, I'm I'm not a huge comic book fan, but he he's not somebody that you necessarily see a lot in comic books nowadays. But exactly right, yeah. And 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 you know, he he was on the periphery. Uh, he would have been you know a peripheral character when brad used him when brad used him he was on a shelf like a character that nobody was really writing and captain boomerang who you know who's made quite a comeback kind of funny yeah um yeah. with the suicide squad and stuff but this was um uh in this story it gives an it's an example of uh, the small lives access uh you know brad uses these smaller characters to uh, access the real pathos and 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 drama and in the lives of these people so um it's good stuff yeah i loved what he said about how dc gave him a kill list and they're like here's a list of everybody that you can kill that's and, you know, crazy yeah I, <laughs> I, I need to know who else is on this list why is that list happening that, that's <laughs> you know like and uh yeah i really want to see that list i wonder who what the biggest name on it was probably i don't know uh, but i Aqu- i really Aqualad. like yeah yeah aqualad is definitely on there um, <laughs> Uh, and probably Jason Todd. Maybe they'll kill him again. Yeah. Well, he he felt like he was he was born to be killed, which is really sad. Like it, like you know, like yeah. Eh, I don't know. There's something dark about that. Yeah. But uh, but uh, I think that uh, it's. I'm going to go back and reread it, and because uh, uh, I haven't read it in quite a while, uh, Identity Crisis, and maybe we can talk about it after you read it and see what you think. Definitely, definitely. I'll pick that up this week. I'm looking forward to kind of actually for the first time having like an introduction to a lot of these Silver Age comic characters. Yeah. Um, one of the things is, you know, I, I have to ask, you know, who came first? You know, we have Plastic Man, we have Mr. Fantastic, and I just learned today there's such thing as Elongated Man. 
Oh, it doesn't stop there, my friend. Uh, there's the. It may sound like a stretch. Uh, Kamala Khan, but, uh... <laughs> I guess, technically is a little stretchy. Uh, and Stretch Armstrong. You know? Oh yeah, and Stretch Armstrong. Um, even Jimmy Olsen, Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen, who's a cub reporter for many years for the Daily Planet, um, he uh, accesses this stretching power, and for a little while, he he was a he was a stretching superhero as well. Yeah, and then you have Elastigirl, technically, from The Incredibles. That's right, that's right. Can't forget Elastigirl. It's a pretty famous power, but uh, do you know who came first out of all those people? Oh, yeah, Plastic Man. Plastic Man was first? Yeah, yeah, and and the classic Plastic Man stories uh, in the 40s, they just had a real panache to them. They were were kind of irreverent and silly, and it was cartoonish uh, in a way like, uh, it felt like kind of like Roger Rabbit, city you know like mm-hmm. uh it, like car- it had a cartoonish it cartoonish and uh, there was still peril uh and bad guys but it, it was all done in a way that uh um it felt kind of like the mask you know the mask i think took a lot from plastic oh Man. interesting you know if you look at the uh the jim carrey movie and and the dark horse comic book that in, inspired it a lot of that jumping off the page and and the characters physically portraying the story because of the he's actually changing shape to to uh, facilitate the narrative and to uh, his reactions are are uh, are reinforced by his shape you know like that's kind of a, a nutty way to do things and also like the genie in um, Aladdin mm-hmm. like that's the kind of plastic man you know humor uh, is that he uh, his 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 physical form was part of the gag gotcha yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I'm, I'm curious. Do you think a Plastic Man could ever survive as a TV show or a movie? I think it'd be a great movie if, if, if it got that elusive tone. That's the problem. Um, and he doesn't do well with other characters. Like you know, that's the thing. Uh, is he and Captain Marvel uh, or Shazam? Uh, mm-hmm. The character was previously known as Captain Marvel, now referred to typically as Shazam. They both were introduced in the forties and both introduced with this kind of uh, uh, playfulness to the world they live in. Uh, the spirit also had that too. Uh, and then other superheroes don't have it. So if you put them together, it just doesn't feel right, you know, typically, uh, or it's, it's trickier, I guess is the way to say it. But I think Plastic Man could be a great movie, uh, if, especially if it, if it had uh, the spirit of the comic. The, the hard thing, though, is depicting the human body changing shape like that in a way that is heroic and looks cool on a movie screen. Yeah. You know, I, I'm still, I mean, Fantastic Four will be a challenge again when, when you know, Marvel Studios takes their, their, their swing at it. It's just kind of a strange thing to do to a human body. And, yeah. Uh, even, yeah. Even in the Fantastic Four comic books, I always thought, as a kid, I always thought it looked kind of strange. And, you know, sometimes the thing would pick up Mr. Fantastic up and he'd be all floppy and stuff like that. And you're like... I don't know. Is this really a good thing? Is this is what the guy is wants? It helpful? <laughs> yeah. The, I mean, he can reach stuff on the top shelf. Is that yeah. really? I guess that's cool. Or like um, one of the one of the coolest things he does in the Fantastic Four movie from the early two thousands is when he reaches his hand underneath the door and unlocks it. Yeah. He's like, "Thank God we had him here." Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Or we would have to kick the door in because yeah. the thing <laughs> yeah. could or or melt it yeah. <laughs> or yeah. turn it invisible and look look through it. Yeah. Yeah. You know any any of these things, but uh, yeah, the stretching thing is kind of a as a quirky a quirky deal and just like the green lantern movie where he makes things manifest mm-hmm. you know these big green shapes it just it's a it's a weird idea 
and it's elusive because it doesn't fit the logic the visual logic of movies as moviegoers know it moviegoers don't see stuff like that very often so until you visually explain it in a way that's interesting and dynamic then it's it's just remains kind of a, a comic book um specific kind of thing you know it yeah i know you and guggenheim had talked about green lantern and how you know you kind of like you have to hit it in a way that works like if if you uh if you're he said if you're gonna make a gallon gun like you gotta like you gotta make it look like a gallon you know yeah it's gotta exactly. look, look in a good way to viewers um but that makes me think maybe you know if shazam and plastic man are you know kind of pals in the comics i wonder if they could kind of do what they did with thor and hulk and have like a in the next shazam have uh plastic man just kind of up here you know yeah i mean tonally he uh, his to uh, in a tonal representation he absolutely fits in the same place as captain marvel uh shazam like uh they were different comic books. Like they didn't meet in the comics in the forties because um, Captain Marvel Shazam would have been published by, um, uh, you know, Fawcett comics and plastic man was published by quality comics, but they, uh, uh, that definitely had that kind of uh, tonal uh, affinity. But uh, I, I think they'd be good movies for, for aimed at a younger audience. And I'd like to see them, but, or maybe animation, you know, plastic. Oh man, yeah. If you think about like the uh, spider verse, Mm -hmm. uh, that would be like a really great way to see Plastic Man realized. Might, maybe maybe the best way, actually, if, if but it would take some of really gifted animation kind of sensibilities and things like that. When I was growing up, there was a Batman TV show called Batman the Brave and the Bold. I'm not oh, sure. Oh, I love how, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It kind of goes back to like the, the 50s, 60s S Batman. Anyways, Plastic exactly. Man's a recurring character in that show and he's very hilarious. Exactly. Because it is the tonality yeah I mean, that's his native place that's that's where he belongs is in that tone so he fits in that better than you know say uh you know just a random like uh you know cyborg yeah exactly exactly a harder edged or or more less uh, reverent kind of thing um no but yeah tones keys but you've been right about this before and so i'm going to give you your chance to have it on record oh. if they made a plastic man movie who do you uh, think would be plastic man Whoa! Good I have I have my man. pick, and it's. Let me hear yours first. I, I think Ryan Reynolds should come back to the DC universe and be Plastic Man. Yeah, it might be a stretch. Get it? <laughs> nice. I don't know if he'll do it. I don't know. Um, that's interesting. He's got he's got the comedic thing. You know, mm -hmm. Jim Carrey. Uh, oh my another, gosh! Another era. Great. I mean, that's yeah. why the the mask. I mean, that's that's kind of what that was. Yeah, if you had, like um, Ace Ventura, Jim Carrey. Yeah. I don't know, you know, the Plastic Man's secret identity, if I remember right, was Eel O'Brien. And he was like kind of like a con man and slippery guy and stuff like that. So um, it'd be fun to see someone. I think Bradley Cooper. Oh, uh, that'd be good. Uh, I'll say that. But that's also a stretch. <laughs> so, and I think, um, so what's coming up next? We got, uh, are you excited about Mandalorian? Yeah, so by the time this episode airs, it'll be the same week as the first episode of Mandalorian. I got to go back and rewatch the first season. I don't, I mean, the first season was more of like uh, an anthology, I guess. You yeah. Know, they didn't really connect, but uh, definitely got to watch that last episode again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to seeing what uh, Dave Filoni and John Favreau have come up with. And, and uh, I know for Disney, there's a lot, there's a lot of people watching because it's a, it's a key, a key release for them to see oh, how yeah. uh, it builds on the Disney plus um, success story. Definitely. And we'll, we'll probably have more to talk about on next week's episode about it, but um, 
yeah, it's, it's, it was just such a smart idea. You know, everybody always likes that iconic arm, Boba Fett armor. And, you know, they'd always talked about doing a Boba Fett movie, but, you know, that might just be a little too difficult or not do very well. So for them yeah, to just go, you know what, let's use the armor because that's what people like. Well, let's make it its own show. It was very so, smart. So, so smart. So yeah. uh, resourceful and and uh, and a great success and, and uh, you know, a, a template for uh, what they should do moving forward with Star Wars and Marvel and other properties for Disney. But, definitely uh, yeah definitely reach in and you know see what you can do you know bring bring plastic man out you know for dc you know do more stuff like that with marvel and and star wars for sure definitely well fantastic well what a full day here at mindspace I, this is we have like a show and a half or two shows now <laughs> yeah definitely so um yeah uh, that was brad Meltzer's episode uh, unless you have anything else uh, no i think show. uh i think it's uh it was a good weekend i uh glad you got to talk to brad and uh hear him talk he's uh quite a guy yeah definitely well jeff it was good talking to you and i'll talk to you next week see you next time 